want, Hanzo? To return home. To seek my revenge. Home? <laughs> you can't return home. Hi, welcome to To the 90s and Beyond. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, so at the time of this recording, that's 25 years now. You can read all of my written work at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the companion podcast to this one called Around the World in 80s Movies, where I cover, of course, films of the 1980s. You can check the link for that at my website, quipster.net. Today, we're going to be getting into a film that's actually not from the 1990s. But it is a continuation of some of the films I've been doing from the 1990s. And that's how To the 90s and Beyond is going to be working out. Covering films of the 1990s and beyond. The only stipulation for films that are not in the 1990s that are more recent is that they, in some form or fashion, tie in to those films that came out in the 80s or 90s. Well, I did three films from the Mortal Kombat universe, so we're going to continue on today with a film called Mortal Kombat Legends, Scorpion's Revenge, and it came out in 2020. But before that, I do want to get into what happened to the Mortal Kombat franchise after Annihilation didn't do so well in 1997. Despite the critical and also the financial disappointment of that 1997 film, Annihilation, there were still plans made by producer Larry Kasanoff for a third Mortal Kombat film. And Kasanoff worked the story idea for the next adventure concurrently while he was working on the syndicated 1998 TV show called Mortal Kombat Conquest. And Kasanoff's company, Threshold Entertainment, their creative team was still reeling from the major mistakes that they had made, or at least somebody had made, with Annihilation. The screenwriters, Brent V. Friedman and Bryce Zabel, they vowed they were not going to return for any more Mortal Kombat, although Friedman did begrudgingly do an uncredited assist for his friend Kaznoff for the pilot for Mortal Kombat Conquest TV series in order to get it picked up, as well as kind of lay out the blueprint for the season ahead. Now, Kaznoff blamed Annihilation's failure squarely on New Line Cinema. He claimed that they released the film before it was complete, and that's why it did not do well. For the next entry, Kasanoff decided that patience was going to be a virtue, especially since in the year 2000, Threshold's contract with New Line was set to expire and he would regain full creative freedom. Kasanoff, he determined he was not going to rush this time. He was going to make sure all was ready to go before shopping his next film idea to other studios. Kasanoff did mull over several potential storylines. He intended that the third film would mainly build on the events from the first film. They would try to avoid any overt allusions to Annihilation. Now, some allusions were going to be unavoidable. He wanted to bring back Johnny Cage for the third film. If you saw Annihilation, you know he died at the beginning of that. But he did want to rope in the fan-favorite actor Lyndon Ashby to return as Johnny Cage. Kasnov also wanted a return of Christopher Lambert into the role of Lord Raiden. And at this time, it was pushed that Quan Chi would be slotted to be the main nemesis for the third entry. In 2001, Drew McWeenie. McWeenie was working for the movie-related website at that time, Ain't It Cool News, he and his writing partner, Scott Swan, were officially commissioned 
to draft a screenplay for the third film. The working title, Mortal Kombat 3, their early draft concentrated on the character of Sub-Zero. Not the original Sub-Zero, but the brother of the one that we saw in the 1995 film Mortal Kombat. Raiden tells Sub-Zero to look for a champion for Earthrealm to compete in the next Mortal Kombat tournament held in Netherrealm. Eventually, it's determined that Sonya Blade and Jax will be the representatives of Earthrealm. Learning from the mistakes of Annihilation, the McQueenie and Swan story, it didn't inject every major game character as Annihilation tried to do, and it would introduce a few new ones. The climax featured Sonya going against a resurrected Johnny Cage. Sonya would free Johnny Soul after she defeated him in the arena. Sub-Zero also has to battle against his dead brother, here called Sub-Zero Prime, ultimately to become the champion of Earthrealm. Now, issues concerning Threshold Entertainment's legal rights to continue the franchise soon plagued the production from further continuing until they were resolved in late 2003. Lyndon Ashby, he had publicly mentioned during this period that he had read the Mortal Kombat 3 script and he deemed it good and that Johnny Cage was going to be back. Christopher Lambert also publicly acknowledged that he was going to return. However, the McWeeny-Swan script never really got the green light and elements of their story would get revised and find their way into the video games, especially 2002's Mortal Kombat Deadly Alliance. Now, it's claimed that the original Mortal Kombat director, Paul W.S. Anderson, he was being courted to return to the series, but he would abandon the project except to stay on as a producer. He was also going to abandon Resident Evil Apocalypse because he wanted to helm AVP Alien vs. Predator in 2004. Now, after that, the rumor mill heated up with reports that Lambert had secured the interest of director Russell Mulcahy, who he had worked with for the first two Highlander films, as well as the 1999 horror flick called Resurrection. And at this time, the working title would officially change to Mortal Kombat Devastation. Further rumors came out that Devastation was set to film in Australia, as well as parts of China by the end of 2004, and that Mulcahy was going to direct also the fourth film, in the series called Mortal Kombat Warzone, and the events of that film were going to continue immediately after the conclusion of Devastation. But the China-Australia shoot never occurred. Mulcahy, he left to Thailand. He left for another project to direct Mysterious Island for TV's Hallmark Channel. In 2005, they decided they were going to try it again. They were going to secure locations in New Orleans. Veteran music video director Christopher Morrison, who went by the name of Mink, all lowercase m-i-n-k, for his credits, he was attached at this point. Now, Mink's prior credits included the 2004 actioner featuring Buster Rhymes called Full Clip and a 2005 Steven Seagal flick called Into the Sun. Now, in addition to Ashby and Lambert, talks were also in motion to return the other main actors, Robin Shu, Talisa Soto, Chris Casamasa and Sandra Hess, who took over the role of Sonya Blade in Annihilation. They had some alternates in case she didn't want to come back. Mink claimed that his version was not going to be a sequel to any of the prior films. It was going to be more of a re-envisioning, kind of like Batman Begins, but with many of the original actors returning to the roles that people liked them in. However, those plans also were scrapped. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina's damage in August of 2005 to the production sites as well as the evaporation of subsequent financing for the film. 
A few months later, Universal Studios considered financing, but during the delay, the script continued to undergo major revisions. It would incorporate elements of the upcoming game, Mortal Kombat Armageddon. And the plot would involve Fujin, the god of wind, who becomes the new protector of Earthrealm when his older brother Raiden ascends to become an elder god. Now, these revisions were done by Larry Kasanoff and Sean Catherine Derrick, along with a, a staff of other writers. It would just go back and forth. It would be sent to Midway so that Ed Boon could look over the script revisions and then return them with notes of advice. And during this period, Lionsgate was the studio that was heading the reimagining. They also had script approval along with some of the financiers. So each party would read the latest revisions. They would supply notes. It would head back to the writers to revise. And they would go through the process all over again. And hopefully, ultimately, all of the parties would eventually sign on. Once everybody was content, they would go through casting the film again. But the process really dragged on for several additional years. Further throwing the third film's viability in doubt was that the manufacturer of the Mortal Kombat games, Midway, was filing for bankruptcy in 2009. Midway's assets, including all of the rights to their video game properties, were sold to Warner Brothers for $33 million. Now this brought a lawsuit by Larry Kasnoff because he claimed that the value of the Mortal Kombat property itself mostly came from his promotional efforts over the years, through his movies, although Warner acquired those movies when they merged with New Line Cinema in 2008, his cartoons, his merchandise, and that he should retain the rights to everything Mortal Kombat outside of the games. The lawsuit would eventually be settled out of court, each side signing a non-disclosure agreement as to what they got into the film. And that's where we leave Mortal Kombat Devastation. Now, there were efforts to reboot the Mortal Kombat franchise shortly after that with Warner Brothers, but I will cover that on the next episode when I talk about the 2021 film, Mortal Kombat. Now, the rest of this particular episode will cover the 2020 film that came out before Mortal Kombat in 2021, it's an animated feature. It is called Mortal Kombat Legends, Scorpion's Revenge. It is a R-rated film. It does have strong bloody violence throughout and some language. The runtime is an hour and 20 minutes. The voice cast includes Patrick Seitz, Jennifer Carpenter, Joel McHale, Jordan Rodriguez, Ike Amati, Darren DePaul, Art Butler, and quite a few others. The reason why I'm covering this is because Kevin Michael Richardson he voiced Goro for the first Mortal Kombat film. Well, he's voicing Goro again for this film. So therein lies the tie-in that allows me to review this film. Ethan Spaulding directs the film. Jeremy Adams is credited with the screenplay. The Mortal Kombat Legend Scorpion's Revenge is a film based on the Mortal Kombat series of video games created by Ed Boon and John Tobias starting in 1992. It was produced by Warner Brothers Home Entertainment in coordination with Ed Boon, as well as his NetherRealm Studios. It was released to digital streaming platforms on April 12th in 2020, and then it was followed by physical media on April 28th. And the film is directed and produced and written by those who specialize in the Warner Brothers animated features, specifically for the DC Comics superhero line of animated features. Jeremy Adams was selected for the screenplay. He was somebody that the Warner team knew was very much into martial arts. In fact, 
eyes would roll during their meetings every time he mentioned another martial arts movie reference or name dropped Cynthia Rothrock. He seemed the perfect person for the job. He's also a huge fan of science fiction and horror movies, and he was very, very familiar with the Mortal Kombat video games. Adams drew from his experience in being a father and knowing that he would do anything to avenge anybody who dared harm his children. He saw his plot with Scorpion was going to be like a mystical version of the Liam Neeson film Taken, and the team worked hard to provide as many callbacks to the Mortal Kombat games as they could within the short framework to try to give fans exactly what they thought they wanted. Now, unlike prior efforts where the story was mostly told from the perspective of Liu Kang, this feature was going to provide the point of view and the origin of Scorpion, who happened to be a favorite character among fans of the video game series since his debut in the 1992 original. Now, it's the first animated effort for the Mortal Kombat property since the 1995-96 run of Mortal Kombat Defenders of the Realm on television, and it was announced to be a production early in 2019, but a separate universe from the James Wan-produced live-action version also in development, which I'll cover on the next episode. Now, unlike prior adaptations, Scorpion's Revenge gives fans something that they've always wanted in a Mortal Kombat feature, graphic violence. There is no shortage of blood, decapitations, dismemberments, disfigurements, impalements, quarterings, disembowelings. It's it's not enough to see limbs being pulled off in this film. We get the X-ray vision, very similar to what's depicted in the recent entries of the video games for Mortal Kombat. We peer inside the victim's bodies to show every ligament tearing, every tendon detaching. Bones are shattered. They're pulled out of sockets. The victims scream in horror for our entertainment, I presume. The screenwriter, Jeremy Adams, he compared this technique to the Sonny Chiba film from 1974 called The Street Fighter. And in that film, when somebody would get kicked in the head, there would be an x-ray shot displaying the target's neck breaking. As violent as Adams thought he was writing it, he was ultimately unprepared for just how graphic the art department was willing to go with this concept and was taken aback by the gruesomeness of the presentation. Ed Boon served as a creative consultant for this animated feature. As with the game, the premise centers around a tournament to the death between the skilled martial artists from Earthrealm and those of the alternate dimension known as Outworld. Fans of the first four Mortal Kombat games, as well as the 1995 film and its animated prequel, Mortal Kombat The Journey Begins, are going to find the story elements to be quite familiar. But this animated feature is not going to be like those efforts PG-13. This is determined to get as graphic as the video games themselves in terms of blood and guts spilling with every major blow or slice to the body. The storyline, that familiar storyline to those who've played the game or seen the original films, is much less jokey, but it does let Johnny Cage provide the comic relief for the film. The only thing that really expands from those earlier efforts is that there's more backstory to the character of Scorpion, and it's much more violent in terms of its content than those original features. And this one features a man named Hanzo Hasashi. He's a, a ninja of a sort who vows revenge as an undead warrior on Sub-Zero and the Lin Kuei, who wiped out Hanzo's people, including his young son. Hanzo rises from the eternally torturous underworld known as Netherrealm as Scorpion. Scorpion's resurrected with wraith-like demonic powers bestowed by the dark sorcerer Quan Chi in exchange for his loyalty, the theft of the mystical key that will free the elder god known as Shinnok, 
and representation in the once-in-a-generation tournament run by the evil Shang Tsung, the Mortal Kombat tournament that we all know. Meanwhile, the Thunder God, Lord Raiden, he's gathering a group of mortal human fighters to take on these high-powered warriors, as Netherrealm is going to take dominion over Earthrealm if they win their 10th straight tournament. And this year's crop is a Shaolin monk named Liu Kang, a special forces operative named Sonya Blade, and the action movie superstar Johnny Cage. And their opponents are going to be the aforementioned Scorpion, plus Goro, the mob boss named Kano, and Sub-Zero. Now, former host of TV's The Soup, as well as Community, Joel McHale, and Dexter star Jennifer Carpenter, they provide the voices for Johnny Cage and Sonya Blade, respectively. McHale does embody the egotism of Johnny Cage very well, improvising, adding a lot more humor to his dialogue. In fact, he improvised so well that when McHale started doing his lines, the producer, Rick Morales, told Jeremy Adams to give more lines of dialogue for Johnny Cage. Now, McHale suspects that there's going to be a lot of discarded fart jokes that he tried to throw in here in the special features of the Blu-ray. Of course, that did not necessarily come to be, but I'm sure he tried. Morales did also have the character designers look to comic book art for their inspiration, specifically from artists like Mark Silvestri and Sean Murphy. Jennifer Carpenter, she gives appropriate toughness in her voice for Sonya Blade, which Adams wrote specifically with her in mind. Adams happened to be a huge fan of Dexter, and he really thought her persona within that show fit the nature of a strong woman navigating within a world of alpha men. Kevin Michael Richardson, as I mentioned earlier, he voiced the animatronic version of Goro in the 1995 movie. He's returning here to voice his animated counterpart, Patrick Seitz, continues to provide the voice of Scorpion, as he has done in the video games since 2008's Mortal Kombat vs. DC Universe. Now, Seitz did not have a wife or children to draw on for his rage, but he channeled his, his angst through daily grievances simply of living in Los Angeles. Steve Bloom also came in to voice Bihan Sub-Zero in Mortal Kombat X and Mortal Kombat 11 and returns here. Now, the intro of Scorpion's Revenge features the WB logo. It has Daffy Duck in it, and in a surprise, the shield of four Warner Brothers opens like a door, and then we see Scorpion grabbing Daffy by the neck and shouting his trademark line, Get over here! And pulling Daffy in with him. Now, the original idea for that came from producer Rick Morales, whose original concept was that Scorpion would pull him in with his kunai, but that was deemed a little too violent, a little too inappropriate to do with the kid-friendly mascot Daffy Duck, despite the hard R levels of graphic violence throughout the rest of the feature. Now, the film, as far as how I judge it, it really is going to depend on what you're expecting going in. If you're just if you've been long awaiting a Mortal Kombat feature that was going to do justice to the video games in terms of its graphic violence, you're going to get that here. Maybe you'll be more enamored with it. But I do think that the film does grow cramped and unfocused by trying to jam in all of the original Mortal Kombat characters and then showcasing the tournament aspect that has been covered in prior entries. It's very redundant to what you've seen before. We'll give them some slack because it's been quite a while since we've seen another Mortal Kombat movie. So... I guess if you are not as uh, familiar with the original films, maybe you'll get a little bit more out of it here. The character development, though, is pretty scant in this film. It's only 80 minutes long, so that's going to disengage some viewers who are not intimately familiar with the lore, the lingo, the personalities from the series already going into this film. And it does linger very long on those pornographic levels of violence and 
in my opinion, it does come at the expense of its storytelling, and that makes Scorpion's Revenge fall somewhat short of being what I would consider to be an excellent film for anybody who is not already an avowed fan of the series that has been waiting decades for somebody to finally adapt the game into a movie that was every bit as ultra-violent as the games. Now, saving these characters for sequels, you know, maybe that might have worked better. You're taking a gamble here that there's going to be a sequel, though, so that would have allowed a fleshed-out main story instead of this scattershot approach of shoehorning in characters and signature elements just for the sake of putting them in. Now, Larry Kasnoff, the producer of 1990s Mortal Kombat films, he did not depict M-rated fatalities because he recognized that what was novel in the video game industry, Mortal Kombat at the time, its violence was very novel for its period. That is passe in the medium of films. You know, ripping out another person's spine, while that may never have been done in a video game before, you've seen throughout the whole 1980s, Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, dismember horny teenagers for like over a decade in a similar fashion. So in a movie form, it doesn't have that unique appeal. Pornographic displays of violence, you know, obviously that's going to sate the game's fans who are ecstatic to see a version of Mortal Kombat that reflects the game. But for those who don't play the game, it's going to seem like the kind of movie Mel Gibson might make if he were trying to direct an animated martial arts feature, too padded with excessive violence at the expense of the story's focus or the depth of the characters. And also not working in its favor is that Hanzo's story arc, it gets pushed aside at some point in this film to make way for the Earthrealm fighters and the combat tournament, and it, that dissipates the momentum to cater more to what fans are expecting to see instead of servicing what it takes to make a compelling narrative from beginning to end. So it does fall short there. The nature of the film's ending does leave major story threads still hanging, and that implies that Warner Brothers intends to continue these animated features with other characters, presumably, so long as there's interest among the fans. Now, as far as my grade for this film, well, I'm of two minds about it. As I mentioned, it does deliver the goods that fans are going to be expecting, but it doesn't really do a lot for people who don't come in intimately familiar with the premise, the story, the characters. Can you watch this film and be as excited about it as somebody who is a fan? Probably not. You know, I do think that you have to carry, or at least some love for this property going into it to really feel like this is an excellent film. It's okay. It's, it's got its moments. It's, the animation is good. The voice cast here is good. Uh, good choreography of the fighting. All of that stuff is in there. But for me, it just falls short of being something I could recommend to most people. And that's why I can only give it two and a half stars out of four. Two and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that it had the tools, it had the talent to be something more, something better, something I could recommend to less of the hardcore fan base. But I think the story is just a little too convoluted. It concentrates too much on stuff that's not Scorpion. And ultimately, I do think that as much as the violence does reflect what you would get in the video games, it is extremely gratuitous in terms of the story. It's just there to try to emulate the games. If the games didn't have this level of violence, this film would never have had this level of violence. And so therefore, I don't think it services the narrative. And when you're not servicing the narrative, you're not really doing good storytelling by that point. So I would rather play the video game and get those levels of violence than to watch a movie that's just trying to emulate the video game personally. So two and a half stars is the best I can give. Mortal Kombat Legends, Scorpion's Revenge.
Now, for next week, I am going to move forward a year to talk about Mortal Kombat from 2021. I'll also discuss, before I get to that review, kind of like I did for Mortal Kombat Devastation, I will talk about the history of how it eventually came to be in 2021, and that will cover stuff that happened early, other attempts to do a reboot that didn't quite get off the ground. And that will be on the next episode. So I hope you'll tune in then. If you have your own thoughts as far as Mortal Kombat Legends Scorpion's Revenge, or if you just want to say something about the Mortal Kombat property in general, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. And until next time, thank you so much for joining me on this journey to the 90s and beyond.